you are probably going to be a very successful computer person. But you're gonna go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California, and massive fan of this film and very excited that finally, finally, as The Rock used to date, we have uh, opened the doors to explore the social network on this show, Steve, and we've got an incredible guest who's joining us. That's what I'm. How could we possibly enter into the social network without film critic, f- friend of the cinephiles, friend of ours, my partner on Enterprise Incidents, Scott Mance? Finally, welcome <laughs> finally, back to the cinephiles. Finally, I, when you sent the email, Steve Morris, it said it's time. <laughs> I could not believe it. I thought I was a, someone's playing a bad joke on me. How long have we been talking about doing the social network for the cinephiles? Because talk about a movie that seriously is perfect for the Steve Morris, John Roca deep dive of movies, a film, John, it's one of your favorites. Yeah. It's one of mine, certainly. And it has stayed one of my favorites of the 21st century since it opened in 2010. What a great movie this is. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I've had trouble getting my head around this thing. And how, I mean, like it's, there's so much here. It's exactly the cinephiles thing to talk about because in terms of filmmaking and craftsmanship, there's so much here in terms of, the movie and the emotions of the story. There's so much here, but then in terms of the broader world that we live in and the importance of Facebook and social networks with where we are politically, socially, everything about our lives, there's a lot here. And so I'm just going to finish it by saying that, man, there's a lot here, guys. Well, there's, there is a lot here. And you know, the thing is, is that it's a really interesting way you put it, Steve, because like, I remember, when I saw the movie at a press screening at the end of September in 2010 and I was driving home uh, from the screening and I pulled over uh, on the side of a La Cienica Boulevard. I couldn't even wait to get home. And I started writing down all these notes about the movie mm-hmm. and I had an epiphany about the film, which I, which I'll share for, with you, you know, later into the uh, podcast here. Cause I don't want to like, you know, blow it at the top here, <laughs> but it's, it's one of the very, very rare movies that stays great over the years but also takes on deeper meanings as the years go by. Like it's exactly like you pointed out, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. The great, as we've said many, many times on the show, Steve, the classic films are the ones that you can revisit multiple times at different times in your life. And you get something completely different out of them. You watch scenes that hit you in a certain way when you were younger. And as you get older, they hit you completely different. And certainly this country and this world has gone through an incredible amount of revolutions since 2010, both culturally and politically and and technology-wise as well. Uh, And we're having these conversations. And we just had a, what, 50-minute conversation about AI and the progression of technology and can it i mean i just saw joe rogan complaining that a, a chat i think an ai a chat gpt or whatever <laughs> they created an episode of his podcast 
<laughs> on its own with someone else. And it was like, it scared the hell out of them. And it's this kind of coding, this kind of compute, this kind of creation, this stuff that we're seeing in the social network is the beginnings. And to think of how quickly we, that has consumed our lives over the last two decades, this film is um, a harbinger uh, and a, a time capsule for what uh, we are all going through now. And I think this is, and to me, this is the greatest film of the last 23 years. I honestly, I, uh, and it is just uh, watching it again for the podcast. I'm so excited to jump into it because of all the incredible stuff that kept popping through as I was watching going, my God, there's so much here. For sure. So, yep. I agree. It's this, it's this, it's this warrior in a room. And you think it's this snooty little film about rich kids, but it's actually this um, jagged-edged, uh, a rough film that bounces up against you and forces you to pay attention to it, and it makes you listen and makes you watch what's going on. And you know the controversy around numerous people who are involved in this film is also something we're going to explore on the show, I imagine, because it's an interesting mixture of elements that created this movie, and I think that's why it also still endures here here it's absolutely true and, and by the way we put out to our people on patreon if they want to ask specific mm -hmm. questions we've already gotten a few and i think we'll get some more and john i think patreon is one of the great places where people can come to support the cinephiles absolutely yeah i mean this is so uh, fun to hear from our fans our patrons who support the show and also have questions that we can read out on the show and look there's many levels that you can support uh, the uh, cinephiles and where we're trying to get to and the next levels we want to go to. So many of you have told us how much you've enjoyed our work over the years and especially bringing on incredible guests like Scott Mance to come on and spend hours with us breaking down uh, films. hours. Yeah, these are the <laughs> gifts. These are the gifts that you get and supporting us as we get to the next level is so important. So head on over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash the cinephiles and see the multiple tiers and benefits you get. And of course, as Steve mentioned, one of those benefits is being able to ask a question and have your name etched into an episode of the podcast forever. Yeah. And the other reason why you should do that for everyone listening yeah. is this. Since I did my first episode of The Cinephiles, which I think was now, what was it, like six years ago, seven years yeah. ago? Uh, you know, when we did Wrath of Khan and when I came back to do 2001 with you and Star Trek The Motion Picture and especially, especially Blade Runner, mm -hmm. you know, in my travels i guess around la you know whatever um you know there are so many movie fans out here in los angeles and you know i get people who come up to me to this day who i think they're going to come up to me because of this or because of that or whatever and they'll say i loved your episode of the cinephiles on blade runner and that was recorded years ago yeah. and people i still get stopped or people want to talk about it and, and that's the impact of what makes The Cinephiles a movie show unlike any other. I've said this before on The Cinephiles. I've said this elsewhere. But The Cinephiles really is the Citizen Kane. Of <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's so kind, Scott. Well, and I think it's part of what exactly what we're talking about with The Social Network is that these movies are things we want to go back to. You know, they're not – they're – they don't just give you two hours of entertainment and then you walk away. They're things you think about and want to talk about. And that's what we like to do here. And the first thing I want to talk about is John Roca. How did you first come to the social network? Well, I wasn't in a place to get a press screening yet in my life. So I came to it like, like a regular film goer with 
a bunch of my friends, we went to see it here in Los, or there in Los Angeles. Uh, and I remember being just absolutely psyched to see this from the trailer. Uh, I was becoming a Jesse Eisenberg fan. I was certainly an Aaron Sorkin fan by this point. So there was so much about this. And and Fincher, who is one of my top five favorite directors, uh, having this all come together, plus talking about Facebook, which at that time was becoming something that everybody kind of wanted to be a, a part of. It was still the beginning stages. All of that combined together to uh, get me very excited. I went, we see it, and I just remember being transfixed. I There are rare movies where I feel like I'm running behind the train of the movie, and Social Network is one of those, where I'm just, I was just constantly running behind <laughs> trying to catch up because of so much that they were delivering. And so I just absolutely, I remember just talking for like two or three hours afterwards with people who I went to see it with at the bar afterwards because there was so much to explore here. What about you, Scott? So, so yes, it was at the end of September of 2010, and I went to this press screening. It was on the Sony lot, mm. and while I was driving home, I was I was halfway home, and I I was completely blown away by the film to the point where when I got in my car, I did not put on the radio like I usually do. I just instinctively put it on right away. I was just racing through this movie in my head over and over again, and I like I said, I pulled over to to the road and was writing down all these notes because i was doing uh the interviews the next day for the junkie nice and i ran my theory about the film by aaron sorkin the screenwriter the oscar-winning screenwriter for this film of course he's an emmy winner multiple times over for you know west wing and so on and he confirmed with me that that was his that was his mo that was his goal that was what he had in mind and it's just like the social network itself just like the facebook and then facebook grew and grew and grew exponentially my love for this film and the thoughts that i have about it the feelings i have about it have grown in the same way it's really something mm. Steve, how about you? So for me, it's it's so funny. I there was a time when I was an absolutely regular moviegoer, and if you were to going to track when that slowed down, it's 2009 and 2010 because those are the toughest years I ever had in my life, and that caused me not to go out that much. And then 2011 was when we adopted my son Jax, and so from that point forward. I didn't go out to movies very much, so I did not see it in the theater. I remember the trailer, which we'll mm. talk about. That trailer is remarkable. Yeah. And I was a huge West Wing fan. Scott, if Star Trek, the original series, is not my favorite TV show of all time, the other one in contention is the West Wing. I mean, like, I oh, absolutely wow. adore the West Wing. I love Aaron Sorkin's writing. I was a huge David Fincher fan. I can't believe I didn't see this in the theater, but I didn't. We watched it uh, at home, and I had the same reaction, which is I was just blown away by the complexity and the craftsmanship and the detail. And thinking about it now, it's the, you know, we've already said it. The movie has just takes on more and more resonance the farther away I get from when it came out. You know, what's interesting is, is you know the, so the film won three Academy Awards for uh, adapted screenplay for Aaron Sorkin for editing and for score for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Can you tell me off the top of your head the movie that won Best Picture this year over the Social Network? I can only because it's in my notes. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> is it the King's Speech? Was it, it is the King's Speech. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I totally movie. like. I totally like the King's. Of course, speech. yeah. King's Speech is a crowd pleaser. 
it's a it's a certain very I would say it's a it's an easy movie in terms of being Oscar bait, uh, mm. but it's not a very ambitious film. And to be honest with both of you and for everyone listening, it is not a film that I've seen again since 2010, where I've seen Social Network probably 20 times. Uh, although not recently, I hadn't seen it since before, uh, definitely before like COVID hit and, and, you know, now watching it now is like watching it fresh. But it, what's interesting is that with a film like social network, like it means something to you when you see it and it means something different to you over the years, but then just through life and circumstance, it means something different to you when you see it later. It's really just one of those movies that just like, it's like a fine wine. It, it, it's, it's extraordinary. But, but uh, uh, why this didn't win Best Picture just still baffles my mind. It is freaking great. Like, John, this is one of the best movies of the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, is The King's Speech one of the best movies of the 21st century? No, no. it's not. Like you said, a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, a little bit of pre-production. Uh, this is based on the book, The Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrich. Now, the book hadn't come out when Aaron Sorkin started working on this screenplay. He read a just, I think, a few pages. I think he read, you know, 40 pages or so and immediately decided that he wanted to do it. Now, I decided I, I did read a book about Facebook because I wanted to get some sense of the reality. I chose not to read this particular book because I didn't want to reinforce this narrative, I wanted to see a different perspective on it. One of the interesting things about Ben Mesrich's book that the movie is based on, Accidental Billionaires, is that he didn't talk to Mark Zuckerberg. In fact, he didn't really talk to anybody involved in Facebook except for Eduardo Saverin. <laughs> and so the perspective of the book is coming very much from Eduardo's perspective. Yeah. And this is the first thing we had to deal with is that there's a lot of art where when I think of this historical figure, I'm actually thinking of the fictitious portrayal of that historical figure. So if I think about Henry V or Richard III, I'm thinking about Shakespeare. Mm. And those things aren't necessarily reality. If I were to think about William Randolph Hearst, in my brain, I picture Charles Foster Kane. But that's not the same thing. This is a very, very contemporary portrayal of someone who became very, very important. And I think it's very hard for me not to picture Jesse Eisenberg mm. for Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, it, you know? it's, I feel like Jesse Eisenberg was playing Mark Zuckerberg in movies before he actually played <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I, it was so, it was like yeah. he was born to play this guy. And there was nobody else who could have done it better. And and all the sort of nervous ticks that, and, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but all the sort of nervous ticks that Jesse Eisenberg has displayed in in films like Adventureland and so on, yeah. uh, and Roger Dodger, uh, he really just like leaned into that in a uh, in a in a very confident way. And in an empowering way, mm -hmm. uh, where he like everything he said to everyone else was very condescending. Uh, it just had such a holier than thou approach. Like it just magnified uh, his performance. And after the Social Network, I, I hate to say it, but I I can't really see Eisenberg in any other way. He's all he's still Mark Zuckerberg to me. Is that yeah. bad? Even when he played Lex Luthor, he had the Mark Zuckerberg aspect to it in the uh, 
uh, Dawn of Justice film. And in and you know what's fascinating too is after this film came out, all of a sudden Mark Zuckerberg started showing up in public. You know, he'd been kind yeah. of a private guy. Yeah, sure. This film, to, in a way, to almost like de or fight back against the perception that Jesse Eisenberg is essentially playing Mark Zuckerberg. He wanted to come out to try to diffuse that and show, no, this is who I really am. And I wasn't obsessed with this girl and I've got this other thing and try to push back on all the narratives from the movie. But in the end, now, all these years later, he's almost reinforced it rather than destroyed it. So I think that's a fascinating um, indirect result of this movie coming out and forcing Zuckerberg out of the shadows. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Sorkin reads this excerpt essentially from this book that's still being written. And what he says is it wasn't the technology that he was interested in. It wasn't the importance of the website or of social media or anything like that. And to be really honest, and I, and I, and I learned this too in reading about him writing the Steve Jobs movie, which mm. is another bio of a very powerful uh, industrialist, is that Sorkin doesn't really get technology. I mean, that's part of the, mm. he's not a technological guy. What attracted him was the story about friendship, loyalty, mm. jealousy, power and class and all of those things are interwoven within this film and that's the thing that he saw that made him want to do it and what was interesting is that so sorkin uh ben mesrich who's writing the book he's continuing to research and write the book sorkin who's writing the movie is researching and writing the movie and they just call each other every once in a while and say hey i found this oh i found this but it's parallel courses it's not that Sorkin is using Ben's research so that they're very, very different. These things. It sounds like essentially the moment Sorkin said, I would like to do this. The movie was greenlit. Like it just was instant. Even before I think Fincher was attached. Is this the second film we've done with Scott Mance where a novel is being written at the same time as the film is being made? Wasn't that going on with 2001? It was. So how interesting how interesting wow john way to go (laughs) (laughs) the parallels so that is yeah that was a great pull you just made because that hadn't occurred to me at all so then fincher comes on the casting process they expected to because they basically have to cast all these young actors and they expected that they were going to spend forever trying to cast the role of Mark Zuckerberg. The one name person that came along that Fincher turned down was Jonah Hill was up for the part. Oh, well, I cannot see him in this now. No, I mean, he, he has proven himself to be a really good actor. Sure. He sure has. He's a two time Oscar nominee. Sure. So they, they basically went, well, I guess we're just going to have to audition every young actor in New York and LA and across the country. And it's going to be a huge search. And Jesse Eisenberg, tapes himself for the role, sends a QuickTime file in, which surprises me because this is pretty early for actors to be sending in QuickTime files. It gets to David Fincher. He watches it. And he had seen a couple of things with Jesse Eisenberg before this. He was familiar with him. Uh, He looks at this thing, goes over to Aaron Sorkin, who's in the next office, shows the QuickTime file to Aaron Sorkin, who basically says, well, I guess the hard part's done. <laughs> we found our, we found yeah. our Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The one other pre, and I don't have a ton of pre-production for this. Mm-hmm. There's more of it. We'll get in as we get into the movie. But the one other thing is that they did a lot of rehearsal. There is a lot of rehearsal, and on the Blu-ray, there is tons of behind the scene where you just kind of see them rehearsing, 
And it's totally, I would highly recommend some of these bonus features that I don't always think they're great. These ones, if you really want to watch the filmmaking process and just kind of observe it as the fly on the wall, these are really good. And what was most interesting to me is that in the rehearsals, it is Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher and they, and it's them talking to each other. And what it reminded me of is John, another movie that we did where this, where the writer was elevated almost to the level of the director was Sidney Lumet and Patty Chayefsky in network. Oh yeah. Is that, yeah. is that Lumet gave Chayefsky so much respect. And so, and that's what I saw here. Not that they were agreeing all the time, mm-hmm. but that they were arguing over every line and going, what does this, cause basically Fincher, major control freak obviously (laughs) he wanted to understand what every line meant and why that line had to be in the movie and was challenging sorkin and you could see sorkin it seemed like these just great artistic conversation between these two geniuses working things through and you see the actors there who are just sitting listening a lot of the time as they're having these discussions and then the actors are asking questions and they are they're working through all the moves so that they really know exactly what they're trying to do it was like serious deep script analysis and character analysis it just looks it it looks like the way i would want to work if i was ever in a situation like that you know wow (laughs) yeah it's sorkin right so if it's going to be sorkin you gotta rehearse you gotta hit those patterns you gotta hit those rhythms oh yeah beats uh, and certainly that's something that as an actor, I'm sure they cherished being able to, to uh, rehearse it so that you could get that uh, down as a rhythm and a pattern when you're delivering these lines back and forth. You know? The way that Sorkin writes, like mm. I remember after he won his Oscar for the social network, I was, I went to a film festival and I was at the airport getting my, my bag in the baggage claim. And so was he. And I went up to him and and you know he remembered me from the uh, the junket interview oh, no. and i and i said to him can you please just write everything just everything please because this movie and i mean i've seen certainly some a lot of episodes of west wing and newsroom and the steve jobs movie but i love love every word is so important in this movie every single word where when i was rewatching it i kept you know, stopping and rewinding because I and I and then about finally I put the subtitles on because I I felt like I was missing something mm. in the dialogue and that was a revelation to watch a fi- the film with subtitles that even though I didn't need to but there is like brilliant dialogue that just flies by uh, it's yeah. an exhilarating thing to rewatch this movie with a fresh set of eyes. So uh, speaking of which, I think we should get into the film, but I want to say one thing first. Yeah. And I will probably hit this point multiple times as we go along, which is that the reality is this is not Mark Zuckerberg. Right. This is a character of Mark Zuckerberg. And and in listening to them talk about the film, and particularly Jesse Eisenberg, he would continually correct himself. Is he would say, Well, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg think the character of Mark Zuckerberg thinks this. Because uh-huh. what we is that it and this based on the, the reading that I did, if you look at the big facts with with one or two major exceptions this movie is pretty accurate yeah but none of the conversations and motivations and internal things are based on any reality they're based on aaron sorkin you know they're what he wanted to say about not the real mark zuckerberg but about these characters and so that's where like you know we just have to kind of check in and go 
the because what we see, particularly right from the beginning of the motivations of this guy, what he wants, why he is he doing it? That is not Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, that is a character. Um, but shall we get into this movie? Let's do it. I, I accept your friend request. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to start. You know, we talked about Aaron Sorkin's dialogue and its speed and how hard it is to keep up with. Well, we're going to start with a nine page long scene of the fastest possible dialogue. And I got to tell you, although I type about 80 words a minute, me trying to keep up and write down all these lines, it was not easy. It took me a long time just for this one scene. When Jesse Eisenberg got the scene, he was like, oh, man, this scene is so great. It's too bad. I'm sure by the time we get on the set, they'll probably cut it in half. And they had not. They had not changed a word. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is opening scene takes place in a bar. As as we've we've said, and most people know, David Fincher likes a lot of takes. Yeah, oh. he has no problem with going through take after take after take. In fact, he has he feels good reasons for it. And the first thing he did was when they first start doing the scene is that he has all those background actors. Normally, background actors they do they they mouth things. They don't actually speak because it would interfere with the soundtrack. So they're just going, you know, mouthing words and the set is quiet. So you can hear the actors. The first three or four takes, he had all the background actors talk at full voices and have full conversations. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) John, as an actor, Uh, how do you think, what would, how would that change your performance? Do you think? I mean, if you've done the right rehearsal and you've memorized the lines and you've really put them into your bones, that is uh, a great test. It's like a tennis player that gets onto um, center court at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or whatever. Like you can do all the practice you want before you step out there. Once you step out there, it's a whole other ball game. So that it's either going to make you electric or it's going to make you shut down. So I think it's a great idea to add this electricity to the scene by having the actors hear other people having these conversations, and in essence you turn it into a much more realistic scene because that's how a conversation would naturally go in real life. So you add more authenticity to the performance even without the actors even knowing it. So it is a, it's a gutsy move, uh, but I appreciate it, uh, the confidence of Fincher to go ahead and try and do that with them. So, so Steve, it, you know, as a screenwriter, as a filmmaker, isn't the, the, the math of a screenplay sort of work out to each page is a minute of film? That's the that's the theory, yes. Okay. Well, in that case, you said that this was nine pages of dialogue at the at the bar between mm-hmm. you know Erica Albright and, and Mark Zuckerberg. Nine pages of dialogue in a five minute scene. Yeah. I clocked it. I clocked it. I went, that scene was not was only five minutes, but you're saying it was nine pages of dialogue. That's how fast they yep. were going. They were like like you listen to your, you know, your books on tape and uh, uh, and twice speed. That's what they were doing. <laughs> I've actually been listening to that Facebook book at three times speed. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so so they're going super fast, and the first thing that we hear is, "Did you know there are more people with genius IQs living in China than there are people of any kind living in the United States?" That can't possibly be true. It is. A couple of things about this. The first thing is is if you go to a development meeting with your script executives are going to be very concerned that everybody understands exactly what's going on. We have to make sure that everything is clear. 
Aaron Sorkin's philosophy is the exact opposite. He wants people to be behind. He wants them to be clawing to catch up to what's going on. Mm-hmm. One's going to spoon feed the audience. One is going to expect the audience to be smart. And this line about IQs is going like, wait, what did he say? <laughs> and it's Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg. And it's Rooney Mara as Erica Albright. Yep. The casting idea that Fincher said he was looking for was Catherine Ross from The Graduate, but with a hard edge. That's what he wanted. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly think she delivers. Yeah. This is like the first introduction of Rooney Mara yeah. for a lot of people. And then, of course, from here, she's gone on to do so many things. But yeah. Yeah. She had done a horror movie, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of came and went. And then she did this. And of course, then she went on to work with Fincher again in the right. American version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, yeah. which is fine. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, the, the foreign film versions, which are much, much better. But uh, I think that Rooney Mara is terrific in this film, even though she doesn't have a lot. It's like one of those roles where she doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. I think maybe like three or four scenes, but the character leaves such an impact yeah. on Zuckerberg the way every time Zuckerberg sees Erica Albright, you know, here's this guy who has no problem telling a room full of lawyers to basically go F themselves <laughs> in so many words. But but Erica Albright shakes him up to yeah. the point where, you know, when you get to the film, the end of the film, you realize just how much she she had as an impact on him. It's really interesting. By the way. There are not uh, more geniuses in China than there are people in the United States. China is about four times the size of the United States population. Mind that that would mean that more than twenty five percent of people in China have genius IQs. That's <laughs> that is not true. But but what's interesting is that the way that Sorkin writes this scene is that not only are we trying to catch up, but she's trying to catch up because he keeps changing what he's saying. And so what's so and this is like just genius level screenwriting is. She's responding frequently to the thing that he said a sentence before, and then he's catching and then he's passing her and then coming back and then she's passing him and coming back. And there are multiple tracks happening at the same time. It's like master, literal masterclass stuff. We find out that he got a 1600 on his SATs and is still trying to figure out how to distinguish himself, maybe an acapella group or maybe getting into a final club. Did you know anything about final clubs before watching this movie? I, I thought you go to college, you go try to get into a fraternity or you stay the independent route. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I had I had no idea. And this rarefied world of Harvard yeah. is so that's why I think it's so interesting that Aaron Sorkin was attracted to the ideas of class. Yeah. And certainly this is part of it. And this is the oldest old school class structure you can imagine in the United States. Yeah, I don't truck in these circles. So to me, yeah. this this all was just a fantastic exploration of seeing a guy who, as you said, has all this intelligence, but he has given meaning to things that he you objectively looking out from the outside, he shouldn't, right? The this I having Erica affect him for the rest of his life, as it's portrayed in the film. Yep. Uh, it is because he's given her meaning. Her opinion has meaning because she rejects him in this moment. And then, we'll, you know, later he goes on to write the blog, which we'll get to. And he's drunkenly right. And he tears her apart. 
And, you know, as we've become more knowledgeable about incel behavior, about male behavior towards women, about sometimes these people who are like on the spectrum or nerdy and can be sometimes, uh, um, how can I say this, can be clumsy or awkward or, or just not able to communicate with women effectively, they turn to anger after the rejection happens because a woman has a right to say, I don't want to go out with you or date you uh, in a conversation. And so that we see samples of that here in this opening in the back and forth. He is trying to control her in his own way in the back and forth. I think it's the genius of Sorkin's logic. I will control what's a joke, what isn't a joke. I will constantly put you on your toes to make you feel like I'm intelligent. I'm smarter than you because I'm coming up with all this stuff. And then when you don't fall forward or you push back, that I'm going to insult the college you go to. I'm going to insult that you actually need to study. I'm going to so these little things that he is constant. It's a power. Uh, scene. He is trying to be in control the whole time because he has already ceded control to Erica from the beginning of the conversation because he has feelings for her and she doesn't have feelings for him. So watching this, what nav- watching him navigate this back and forth with Erica is truly fascinating now through the perspective that we see now more of a mainstream understanding of incel male behavior towards women. Excellent point, Johnny. You actually gave me a question that I'd like to yeah. ask, which is what is the name? Because we say that they're dating. I mean, they both say she says she's breaking up with him later, and he says yeah. we're dating. So, what is the nature of their relationship before we walk into this bar? Well, she gives us a clue that dating you has been the most difficult thing because of blah, blah, mm. blah. so clearly this has been probably they probably weren't together too long. That's I what I think. Imagine too, yeah. They were together yeah, too long. I, I I agree. I don't see right. them like being together for too long. You know, she right. probably tolerated him, him until this moment, which said, you know, who needs this? Right. Because women, you know, you experiment in college. You go, okay, yeah, I'll give it a chance. I'll see what's here. And then, you know, when when it's done, it's done. The fact that they're doing it, she's, you know, very open to do it in a, in a full bar shows the level of respect that she, the lower level of respect that she has for him because she would not. And then even when they do the friends thing, she's like, yeah, I just said that to be nice. I don't actually want to be friends with you ever yeah, because he has burnt it and made her feel inadequate. And that's not how you get a woman. So I'm sure she, he's did this multiple times. And then she just kind of agreed to meet him that night. And absolutely. was like, this is done. Get out of here. I don't want to be with you anymore. And it's his own fault, you know, cause oh, he yeah. tried to take control. I think she makes that decision in the scene. I don't think she, yeah, I I don't think she was, had decided that before she got in. Oh, you don't think she, oh, I do. I think she decided to break up with him before she even showed up. But I think she decided not to be friends with him in the course Mm -hmm. of the scene. That's what I, that's what I would say. By the way, one of the things I think that's interesting is he's thinking through Final Club and Acapella Group. Mm. She says, You know, from a woman's perspective, sometimes not singing in an Acapella Group is a good thing. This is serious. On the other hand, I do like guys who wrote crew. (laughs) Which we're going to see a lot of guys who wrote later on in the film. Oh, yeah. But mostly we're focusing on this Final Club thing. Not Finals Club. Yeah. Not Finals Club. (laughs) Uh, And I do like the moment, by the way, as he keeps jumping from topic to topic and she's trying to keep up. Would you like to talk about something else? No, it's just since the beginning of the conversation about finals club, I think I may have missed a birthday. And he's still on the, on the finals, on the final club thing (laughs) and, and starts going through a list of them. And there's a lot of them. Uh, And we even talk about Teddy Roosevelt uh, and that he was in one. And we also hear, and this is a plant of what we're going to see later, is that... Is it true that they send a bus around to pick up girls who want to party with the next Fed chairman? So you can see why it's so important to get in. Like, in his mind, this is a stepping stone to success. Yeah, for all of his intelligence, he is hung up on the old school social constructs of, you don't have value unless you can get women, right? In the male 
straight approach. You don't have value unless you can get women. You can be intelligent, but what's it matter if you can't sleep with a bunch of girls or a bunch of women? So that's what he's caught up in. And so he thinks he's got to stand out in order to get into these clubs and then also achieve status down the road. So clearly there's a piece of him that wants to get to a position where he is revered and respected, even though he probably abhors almost every human being on the planet. This character does. Well, and and it's also, I mean, getting in these clubs probably will help you in your career and success and all those things. I mean, there's a lot of presidents and people that come out of these, uh, by the way, they have the moment where they said, I mean, do you think if Teddy Roosevelt was in this, wasn't in this club, he, he probably wouldn't have been elected president. And I was like, he wasn't elected president. McKinley was assassinated yeah. and he became president. So True. That, that was, he was elected for the second term. Yeah. My friend Eduardo made $300,000 betting oil futures one summer and Eduardo will come close to getting and the ability to make money doesn't impress anybody around here. Must be nice. One of the big things with Mark as we talked about status, but it's status with his friend, mm-hmm. you know, is that it's important to him that he surpasses his friend Eduardo. It's not yeah. just that he does well. It's that the other person doesn't do as well as him. Mm-hmm. So you bring up a very, very crucial point about the relationship between Zuckerberg and Eduardo Saverin. We've already seen a moment in the film with between Erica Albright and Zuckerberg that is going to have repercussions mm-hmm. out the movie up to the very, very end in what I would call a sort of surprise ending of sorts that people maybe didn't see coming. So I was going to wait to, to say this, but the social network is the citizen Kane of the 21st century. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's not just like, Oh, it's a great movie. It's the citizen Kane of the 21st century. No, it is. It is the citizen Kane of the 21st century because gentlemen you have facebook the internet Mm. what does the internet provide information Mm. what did the newspapers that charles foster kane presided over provide information you have this relationship between zuckerberg who is charles foster kane and Eduardo saverin who when you realize as the movie progresses and you see this rift go uh, separate them further and further and further, Saverin is Jedediah Leland. He's Leland played by uh, Joseph Cotton in Citizen Kane. And when you see the beginning of this film and the, and, and this, what, what Erica Albright represents and then at the end of the film, Zuckerberg keeps refreshing his page mm-hmm. to see if she accepted his request. She, Erica Albright, is Rosebud. Mm. So it really is Citizen Kane of the 21st century. So is Justin Timberlake? Well, well, we'll find out. <laughs> I, 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 so, so Scott, Bernstein, it's but yeah. So Scott, I had the advantage of knowing you had already said that. Um, you you said that social network is is Citizen Kane when we did our 200th episode movie in the interview. Oh uh-huh, yeah. So I so because I had heard you say that and had edited it and thought about it, I was thinking about that throughout watching and researching this Ooh. film. I completely agree with you. Yeah. I think there's and I think there's way more. There are tons of parallels. Mm-hmm. The biggest one, which you kind of said, but I want to highlight is. 
Orson Welles and Mankiewicz decided to do a movie about a contemporary figure who was still alive and still exceedingly powerful. Right. And that's William know. Randolph Hearst. I mean, yeah. and that's exactly. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I think I feel. And, and I'm very curious to hear when we get to the end, what your feelings are about Mark Zuckerberg at the end of the movie. Uh, because it's a very complicated moment that we see at the end. And obviously we'll get there. But the one one of the huge differences, when I first meet Charles Foster Kane, the, the adult Charles Foster Kane in the news offices, and Orson Welles turns around, he is the most charming, charismatic, mm-hmm. likable, amazing person that you could possibly meet. And then he descends through all of these stages to become this lonely, difficult, angry, sad character. I do not like Mark Zuckerberg at all when I meet him in this bar. Excellent he is ex- he is exceedingly unlikable, I think. Mm-hmm. He he is a very difficult character for me personally. That's my reaction to him. I, I agree 100%. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg at all. I don't like him from the beginning and I don't like him I I don't like him more <laughs> by the time the movie reaches its conclusion. Whereas Steve you're absolutely right when you first see Charles Foster Kane played by Orson Welles as he, he's a grown up. You're seeing him as a grown up, as an adult for the first time. He has dreams. He's idealistic. He is uh, someone you aspire to like you admire this person for his ambition and for his, for, you know, he, mm-hmm. he could just sort of ride on the coattails of his fortune, but what does he do? He buys a thinky little newspaper and builds an empire out of it. And in the process, he loses his character. That's the tragedy of Citizen Kane, and that tragedy is missing in the social network because Zuckerberg doesn't have that same arc. And you're you're right to point out that the one that Kane goes through is very very different. But there still are so many parallels. I never even thought about the one about how when they when they wrote Citizen Kane, Hearst was still around, and clearly Zuckerberg is still around as well. Oh. Oh, it's interesting. I find him more redeemable than maybe you two do a little bit. And only because I think this is a emotionally fucked up kid. And uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. But I will say this. I think you're absolutely right, Scott, because Citizen Kane is the product of who we were as a country back then. Mm-hmm. Zuckerberg in this film, Social Network, is the product of who we are as a country at that time and now. Sure. And so that we wouldn't have create a Citizen Kane quite the same way, who'd be charming, do all this. The tragedy is that the tragedy about this guy is that he was so obsessed with this girl that his, according to the narrative of the film, that right. the entire thing happens because this girl rejected him. The entire thing happens. That's the tragedy is that he put uh, so much uh, worth into her that he got lost in all of his shit trying to get her back. And at the end, if he had just been a nice guy had been capable of being a regular human being, nice guy, conversational wise, whatever he'd have gotten her back or as a friend, at least if nothing else, sure. and I'm not saying I'm, ex- I'm not excusing his behavior because <laughs> he does some pretty abhorrent things in the film, especially what we're going to get to with face smash. Um, but there are, there is a little bit of sympathy I have for him because he does not have the emotional tools from which to understand the things that he's doing are destroying people and hurting people. But that's the kind of thing that we are, we were, we are producing in this country. And and the other things you can connect to citizen Kane is really interesting. You guys have really put me on an interesting track here mentally, because 
you could argue uh, Charles Foster Kane grabbing all the San Francisco Chronicle people to come over to his place is oh, like yeah. him grabbing the Winklevoss uh, plan and using it for himself to do Facebook. That's absolutely connectable. In that I way. knew, I right. knew John and I knew Steve that as this conversation was going to happen, that there would be there would be other connections, yeah. other parallels that that even I didn't see coming. But yeah. uh, but that's the beauty of it. We're all seeing different things about it, and that is another one. That is another one. Yeah, he's also accused of yellow journalism, which is what in real life Facebook gets to eventually in our world over the last few years in the election cycle. So mm-hmm. it's just a fascinating thing to see the real life combined with the fictitious life that we see in both of those movies. So yeah. Well, and uh, William Randolph Hearst is well known for supporting and starting the Spanish-American War, and Facebook is now we could blame all sorts of things on Facebook, yeah, all sorts of wars on yeah, Facebook. Sure. Yeah. Um, we're still the first scene, though. Here we go. <laughs> back, back into the scene. What one of the techniques, and again, I put this in the master class of screenwriting, is what I will call the dangling topic, which is that what he's what Sorkin is doing is he'll say a thing. And then they're talking because they're talking about three things at once. We don't respond to that thing until later. And one of the things that comes up earlier as we first start talking about all these final clubs is Erica asks, which one is the easiest to get into? And then we're talking about rowing crew and Teddy Roosevelt and other stuff. And then Mark, who clearly picked up on that, says, you asked me which one was the easiest to get into because you think that that's the one where I'll have the best chance. He takes it as a dig against him. Yeah, it's his, it's his insecurity and low self-esteem yep. because she says that he assumes this. I was honestly just asking, okay? I was just asking to ask. Mark, I'm not speaking in code. Does she speak in code? I don't think she speaks in code. I think she's trying to keep up with where he's going. And so she's trying to be nice as a lot of women have to do in situations like this. I'm just trying to be nice to get out of this situation. Yeah. And so she's going along with it and saying, which one's the easiest one to get into? And she's legitimately just asking him about it uh, because she wants to find out which ones are the easiest one of conversation uh, maybe. And then, you know, maybe give some advice or whatever, but he takes such offense to it that now at this point she's having to kind of work through the situation. Yeah. By the way, have you guys ever, uh, I'm, I'm sure the answer to this is yes, been with a friend who is spiraling the way Mark is spiraling in this moment, you know, where they're just obsessively talking about a thing and you're just kind of there trying to like, you know, okay, let's get you to the place. I'll go one up. I've in been our world, yeah. In our world, not just talking about movies, but especially uh, whether it's, you know, the, the three of us together or separately with other people. As you know, when you get into like the superhero stuff or the, the sci fi stuff, stuff of it all, I mean, look at the end, Mark Zuckerberg's a nerd, <laughs> yes, and yeah, yeah. and so are we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have, I have, I'll do you one, but I've, I've been the guy spiraling, in ah! me too, me <laughs> too. Girl. As soon as I asked the question, I was like, yeah. I've been that guy, it's, it's the fucking worst, sure. you, yeah, because you have low self esteem, because you don't have the emotional tools, and you're just stumbling around trying to seem like the big man when in fact you're the little man and you don't know it and she does and it's tough yeah and i think the 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 question about easiest there's a direct link between that Mm. to him saying i want to try to be straightforward with you and tell you that i think you might want to be a little more supportive if i get in i will be taking you to the events and the gatherings and you'll be meeting a lot of people you wouldn't normally get to meet now talk about speaking in code (laughs) does he have any idea 
how she would receive that. And is he intentionally saying it, knowing it's a dig, or is he not intentionally, not aware of the fact that that could be interpreted as a dig? Uh, I think he knows what he's doing because all throughout the film, he's making digs to whether it's it's Erica or later, of course, to uh, uh, his friend at Water Tavern. But certainly when he gets to meet like the Winklevi, <laughs> you know, the Winklevoss <laughs> twins. <laughs> I know the Winklevi. I laughed out loud when I heard that again. Um, he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows it's going to rub people the wrong way. All throughout the courtroom scenes, when you go mm-hmm. back to to the, you know, the the scenes in the, not the courtroom, rather, the lawyer's office. Yeah. Uh, he's doing that big time. So, yes, I think he he knows that it's a dig. I think when I first saw it, I just was going, oh, this guy, I w- he's such an idiot. Like, why is he saying? And then after watching the whole movie and going back again, yes, I 100% think he knows what he's doing. Because Exactly. Because you're exactly right, Scott. That's what he does all the time. Yep. You would do that for me? Or date. Okay. Well, I want to try and be straightforward with you and let you know that we're not anymore. What do you mean? We're not dating anymore. I'm sorry. And it takes him a while to get now. He can't catch up to like, wait, what, what, what are you saying? You're breaking up with me. You are going to introduce me to people. I wouldn't normally have the chance to meet. What the Sorkin is one of the best at the cutoff line and the re and the restating. That's one of his techniques that he just is so good at. What the, what is that supposed to mean? Wait, settle down. What is it supposed to mean? Erica, the reason we're able to sit here and drink right now is because he used to sleep with the door guy. I mean, if we talked about going from bad to worse, man. The door guy, his name is Bobby. I have not slept with the door guy. The door guy is a friend of mine, and he's a perfectly good class of people. And what part of Long Island are you from? Wimbledon. Here's the thing. The way that Zuckerberg talks to people, everybody, and then after this moment at the bar where she breaks up with him, Zuckerberg doesn't talk to Erica like that ever again. He mm-hmm. doesn't talk to her. In fact, when he sees her maybe a couple times again in the movie, he's like thrown. He doesn't know how to act around her where he seems like he knows how to act around everybody else. Yeah. Like he's certainly thinks he is above everyone. But when it comes to Rosebud, when it comes to <laughs> Erica, she has, she, she's pulling the strings and, and he is like, like, jelly jello in her pants really yeah. well and, and this is the i i by the way i am 100 percent agreeing that she is rosebud 100 percent, mm. and particularly with the way that the movie is bookended and and i think this is one of the really as a movie i think it's fantastic yeah as a choice artistically about a real person this frames the entire film mm-hmm. her rejection of him and his treatment of her sets up exactly how we're going to feel about this character for the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And this is not true. There is, by the way, we're going to see him go home, have a couple of beers and blog about someone and call her a bitch. Mark Zuckerberg really did do that. It's not a person named Erica Erica Albright. The name has changed and some of the things are changed. But the idea that there's this one person that he couldn't get that he is obsessed about, which essentially Sorkin uses as the motivation, the defining thing of this character, that is not true. In real life. In real life. Yeah. But (laughs) it's still a fantastic scene. I love, by the way, the line, 
dating you is exhausting. It's like dating a stairmaster. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's <laughs> so good. I swore he, won the Oscar, man. He, he says, Mark says more condescending things about BU, about her need to study. And Fincher, when he got the script, he's read the first eight pages of the scene. And he says, if she doesn't punch him in the face, I'm putting this script down and I'm never going to read another page. Mm. Then he gets to the final moment of the scene and goes, I'll keep reading. <laughs> you are probably going to be a very successful computer person. You're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. So, you see, Fincher looked at it as how a man would react, which is to punch, right? But the woman just will eviscerate. Ken has the ability to eviscerate you with a line like that. And it's so well written by Sorkin. And it, it finally shuts him up. It finally shuts him up because he's like, I'll apologize. You won't apologize. I, I mean it. I apologize. And nothing's going to work. At the, the thing we went, once you cross that line, man, you're not coming. You're not ever coming back. You're not ever coming back. And so um that he when she says that very especially with a woman with strength and a uh, spine and inner belief in herself you're not coming back and so in that moment he is trying to find his way back or in that in the back half of the scene he's trying to find his way back and she's not going to let it happen and at the end she drops the hammer because he won't just accept it um because he tells her you don't need to study you know he's like telling her what she needs to do and it's like no respect my wishes respect what i'm saying let this go but he won't. And so eventually, so she, he pushes her to have that final moment where she eviscerates him um, with something that he can't fix. So there's a, a distinction I'm going to try to articulate that I'm not sure that I can, but there is mm. when there are times, all of us have had fights with people that we love. All of us, I'm sure have said sure. things that we regret. There are certain things that you can come back from. <laughs> yeah. But what you can't come back from is where you actually reveal your true feelings about the other person because those are your true feelings. Mm -hmm. His condescension towards her mm -hmm. is so revealing of the basic fundamental disrespect mm -hmm. that he has for Erica. There's no apologizing for how you feel. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing he could say that would translate to the fact that he doesn't respect her. That's and that's what she heard. Yeah. And she says, you're an asshole. And she walks out. His reaction after Erica gets up and leaves is huge. Yeah. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steve, and as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. 
Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Finch, so first of all, they, they had two cameras going this whole time. And and frankly, with Aaron Sorkin dialogue, you almost have to have multiple cameras because it's so overlapping and it's so tight. There's no way that two different takes can match each other. And so the fact that they have ca- both cameras on makes it much, much easier. How many cameras did they have? Two. Two for this scene, mostly two cameras. Oh, There's two, two okay. people. Later on, I think they actually had three cameras, which it makes it harder to light. It makes things more complicated in terms mm. of cinematography. But for the actors, it's great because you're really doing the whole scene. But they did 99 takes. What? What? <laughs> 99? How, how many days is that? Like how Two many? days. Two oh, days. Of this scene, and here's what's interesting: so a couple of things about it. <laughs> and by the way, this isn't the only scene that had 90 takes. Oh my oh god! My fuck god. you! But he's shooting. It's so funny. We just did a whole bunch of Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino loves film. He yeah. likes film, old school film. Fincher loves digital, mm. and this is part of why film is expensive. You can't shoot 99, and it's time consuming because you got to reload. You got to the Digital, you could just like go, go again, go again, go again. It's easy, doesn't cost anything, costs time. And that's also why he can blow the first three or four takes by having the background all talking because mm-hmm. you're not, none of that audio is going to be usable sure. because you've made so much sound, but he doesn't care. What, and then the other thing he says that Fincher says, part of why he likes to do so many takes is he wants to, and this is his word, is to casualize the lines. Yep. Is he wants to tire out the actors enough so that it be- ceases to be so pre- precious. Mm. You know, okay. that it's just... Well, and, you know, I, I, I know, John, you know, you and I have both been in plays. Mm. You do those scenes when you're rehearsing over and over and over again, and there's a place where you get bored with the script, yeah. bored with your performance, and then there's a place where you move past that. Yeah. And that's usually where you kind of discover the magic. You know, and that's where Fincher's going. All right, but so 99 takes is a question. lot. So, so let me ask you a question. If this scene was done in 99 takes, was it take 99 that was used? No. Well, <clears throat> there were probably, <clears throat> so I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you something about the post-production process that I was going to save to the end, but, but it applies to your question. So for, first of all, the editors are editing while they're shooting. They're trying to put together an assembly. That's always what editors are trying to do. It's way harder to do that when you have a director shooting 99 takes than it is when you have a director shooting six takes because you have to watch them all. So Fincher isn't just controlling an anal in terms of performance, in terms of rehearsal, in terms of set design, in terms of camera angles, but he is controlling an anal in post. And so what he will do is, first of all, they will go through every single line on every single take and look for what is the best version that Jesse Eisenberg did of this particular line. Hmm. And so when they're cutting back and forth between the two, you could be cutting from tech thir- take 38 to take 42 to take 17 as you go back and forth. But that is not all Fincher does because Fincher will look And by the way, the, the um, if you want to really understand how some of post and editing works, again, I highly recommend these behind the scenes because you will watch eight takes of Jesse Eisenberg saying the same line. Mm. 
mm. in this behind the scenes stuff. And you will see the subtle differences. This one a little more aggressive, this one emphasizing a different point. And the lines have totally different meanings depending on how the actor delivers them. So they're looking line by line, but that's not all Fincher does because sometimes Fincher will go, you know what? I really like the visual performance of this line, but I like the audio performance from a different line. Mm. So he will pull the audio from a different take, sometimes using digital effects to get the mouth shape to fit exactly because the pacing of the line will be different. But that's not all he does. Oh, because sometimes he likes one word audio from one line and mm. word from a different line to put them together to get exactly the performance that he wants. And that is what Steve Morris does when he's editing the cinephiles and enterprise. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I certainly have pulled some tricks sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never, never ever have I pulled. I mean, there are times where I have found an um from one place and stuck it in to make, oh it God. And, you know, sound different. There are certainly, and, and definitely like a, a very common technique. This is not the crazy Fincher level of analness right. is if I'm cutting back and forth and like, you know, John and I are doing a conversation and I'm cutting from your shot to my shot. Well, when we cut to my off camera shot, I might use a different take of the audio because I like it while I'm looking at John's face. Mm. That's that's totally that happens in every single movie. That happens all the time. Or even take two halves of a line and stick them together in an off-camera piece of dialogue. <laughs> to do it on camera and match one visual shot with a different piece of audio and three different audio lines, that's nuts. I've never, ever, ever done anything remotely like that. That is a level of crazy that is beyond <laughs> Um, and, but, but you can't argue with success. I mean, movies are made out of the tiniest little details and Fincher cares about all those details. Yeah. One other thing, uh, Jesse Eisenberg has panic attacks before shooting scenes. You know, he has a lot of anxiety and nervousness and no. getting to the end of this scene was huge. <laughs> like we did it. 99 takes nine pages of dialogue. He got to the end. And was this the first scene of the movie that was shot? I don't think it was. I think it was very. I think it was the first big scene that was shot. I think they might have done some other smaller things first, but I think this gotcha. is the first big one. And what's interesting, it sounds like I get the sense that this movie was essential in the process of Aaron Sorkin becoming a director in his own right. Mm. Oh, it was the for first sure. Yeah, for sure. When you when you look at the movies he he did direct, mm. you know, Trial Chicago Seven. Right, but um, he did the Lucy movie. He, yeah, yeah, that probably inspired him to be uh, a, a director. But I, at the top of the conversation, when I said that I spoke to Aaron Sorkin at the press day, so the conversation I had with him was this movie is Citizen Kane. I went down the list that I gave you guys. Mm. I said, "Was that your plan? Did you did you mean to do that?" And he said, yes, absolutely. This is Citizen Kane. It is Citizen Kane of the 21st century. It is, I absolutely was very, very, very much inspired by Citizen Kane uh, when it came to the arc of the story, the mm -hmm. connections to the character, the parallels. Uh, and, and I just felt kind of proud that I kind of picked it up on my yeah. own, but uh, that, that it was validated by the guy who wrote the friggin' yeah. screenplay uh, was, pretty, was pretty awesome. I want to talk about music. So let's do that. The yep. music is, and we'll talk about it throughout, but so at the, in the script, I believe it was in the script. 
at this moment, Aaron Sorkin had written in a song that he wanted to play. Hmm. Fincher did not like that song. He wanted the scene to end with Beyond Belief by Elvis Costello. That's what he wanted playing at the end of the scene and over the tiles. Everyone on the production, Aaron didn't like that idea. Everyone on the production was like, that's totally the wrong generation. These are, you know, 2000s. Like, you can't have the Elvis Costello. That's not, doesn't fit the mood. It doesn't fit anything. And Fitcher was like, no, I want this. Trent Reznor is the composer from Nine Inch Nails with uh, Atticus. Is it Atticus Ross? They have just, are work, the, the, we'll talk more about how this whole thing was scored, but their process was very different is what they were doing was kind of working on sketches. So they'd play some stuff, they'd mix some stuff, they'd send stuff to Fincher, not necessarily connected to a specific moment in the film, just here's some music. Yeah, This piece of music came in, and Fincher listened to it, and he brought it to Aaron Sorkin, and there was no intention that this was going to play in the title, and as soon as both of them heard it, they went, goodbye, Elvis Costello, <laughs> goodbye, other idea. Oh, wow, wow. The other thing, the title music is going to be used three times in the film. Mm-hmm. It's central to the film, this theme. And each time it's recorded slightly differently, which I found really interesting. For the first one, it's played that piano. It's like a droning sound with this piano, these kind of piano chords coming in. And it's played on an upright piano. And it's mic'd very close. Later on, it's played on a different piano, and the mic placement is different, more farther away. And the final one, the mic placement is very far away. Let me ask you a question about the score, because I'm glad you brought it up, because, of course, you're going to bring it up, because on the cinephiles, you guys leave no stone unturned. We try. But when Zuckerberg goes back to his dorm room, I guess, after getting getting his heart broken, the score by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, it, it hits a few different emotions. Like it strikes this balance between being haunting and there's a melancholy to it, a melancholy that is supported by the exquisite cinematography of, uh, of Jeff Cronenworth. I can't explain it, but it really stays with me. Like I'm hearing the score in my head as I'm just talking with you about it right now. One of the interesting things, so here's, here's how when I teach a class on scoring, how I say it works. And I'm going to say it to say that because that's not at all how it worked on this movie, which is just evidence that I want to point out over and over and over again is that I have strong opinions about those about how you should do stuff. And those opinions are not right. They're just my opinions. There's lots of different ways to do stuff. So in my mind, you're, you're working on the movie and you have a spotting session with a composer and you go over moment by moment. This is what I want the music to be doing emotionally here. This is when you discuss different styles of doing it. And maybe you're working in the John Williams tradition of light motifs and you have Indiana Jones's theme and you have this person's theme. And lots of times the music is going to come to the fore in a way and really tell the story emotionally. None of that is how any of this happened. Is that what happened was, first of all, Trent and Atticus are hanging out in a room and they have all sorts of instruments. And it seems like, and I don't know a lot about him. Many people know much more about Trent Reznor, but from what I could tell, he's pretty fascinated by different kinds of instruments from different eras, different kinds of synthesizers, different sort of unique instruments that make a specific kind of sound. Hmm. And so they talk a lot about the movie 
And then, and he hasn't had a spotting session with Fincher. Fincher hasn't told him what he wanted. They haven't sat down and gone through scene by scene. They're just kind of talking about emotions. And the first thing they decided was there's like nonstop talking in this film. Mm. You can't create a strong melody because a strong melody would compete with the dialogue. You have to have something that can play under all of that super, super fast paced action. So that's the first thing is they rejected melodies. Mm. And then what would happen is that Trent would pull out his guitar and he would play something. And then they would pull out one of these other instruments and he would play something. And Atticus is recording all these things and they play this and then they play that. And then what Trent Reznor said was, and then I get really frustrated with the whole process and I hate everything that I've done. And I go, fuck it. I'm going to go take a walk. <laughs> and he leaves. <laughs> and then Atticus, and he might even say, don't use that last thing I recorded. That was terrible. I hate that. And then Atticus will probably start with that last thing that Trent hated. And then he'll put them all together because he's the producer and kind of mixing things in ways that Trent never, never intended at all. And then he'll come back in and listen to the playback. And then they'll talk about that. And they did this a bunch. And they came up with 30 or 40 minutes of material, not directed at any particular point in the movie, mm -hmm. and just sent it to Fincher saying, here, check this out. You'll probably won't like any of it, but this is what we've been doing. What do you think? Fincher gets it and goes, this is perfect, and starts putting it in the movie okay. at places that he thinks. That is so different from how movies are usually scored. Mm. You know? And, and, and that's, so that's how you get this weird, droning, non-melodic, profound sort of undertone. It acts as an, like an ambience and an undertone throughout the whole film in this really powerful way. It's very powerful. I agree completely. And, you know, maybe it's the droning aspect that stays with me. Maybe it's that, that and, and it, you know, you hear these three notes played on a piano over the droning sound of the score. And there are different tones of the three notes. And it's very simple in that way, but it's so effective. Yeah. And it's unlike any of those kind of scores that you hear yeah, that you're referring to, you know, uh, Steve, from from the greats, so to right. speak. Well, I think this is what's fascinating about Reznor and Ross, and you know, because Reznor started doing scores back with um, Natural Born Killers. He mm. he produced the soundtrack for that, and they eventually moved on to Lost Highway, and then One Hour of Photo. Remember that Robin Williams film mm. directed by uh, uh, Mark Romanek, and then um, moving on to Social Network, and then did girl with a dragon tattoo and then gone girl. So, you know, working with Fincher has been something that's really been a good um, thing for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and their abilities to bring these um, feelings out in this, in these um, films that are the combination of everything you just mentioned emotionally, Scott, how that he was able, how they're able to weave those feelings in and a lot of that carry a lot of those themes and those multiple emotions at the same time um, are also occurring in these other films. So clearly this is a staple of their ability to create this. And then of course they did soul, which is really a completely left field. Totally soul. Beautiful so, film too. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful film, film. Yep. but it's a completely different score than you've heard before that, that, that they do. So I love that. And yes, absolutely. This is one of those films where the score is just as important as any performance, any script, or any direction, because it really does decorate what you're feeling as you watch the film. To me, it's not necessarily a noir, but it's a very visually dark film for, for a majority sure. of yeah. the film. And it's because this is a very dark dude inside. And so you're re that's reflected out as you're watching 
uh, the movie. And you could argue maybe that's another way that it's connected to Citizen Kane because there's a lot of dark stuff in Citizen Kane, dark scenes in Citizen Kane. And so maybe there's an element of that connected through for what what he's going through here. Uh, what we're seeing is Mark heading home and running through what we think is Harvard. It's actually mostly shot at Johns Hopkins. Mm. Harvard hasn't let a movie shoot there since 1970 when Love Story d- damaged a lot of Harvard's property and they just went, that's it. <laughs> we're uh-huh. done. No more. more <laughs> Never ever trust a producer when they tell you they're not going to destroy your property when they shoot on the set. They will destroy your property. So I will tell you, Scott, here is another parallel with Citizen Kane. Yep. One thing I learned when we did our episodes on Citizen Kane that I really didn't know is that Citizen Kane, I think, has more special effects shots than Star Wars. Mm. It is so and it's all sorts of special effects shots that you never really think about because it's a realistic film. But there's so many mats that are used. There's so many camera tricks that are used. All these kinds of things that are used to make Citizen Kane look like this. The same is true of Social Network. There are so many special effects in this movie. One of them is that we're not shooting at Harvard, but Harvard buildings are matted in in the backgrounds of all sorts of shots <laughs> to make us feel like we're at Harvard. Interesting. Interesting. And of course, you know, when we get to the Winklevi, <laughs> there's like ridiculous special effects going on. Yeah. And of course, when they're talking outside in the freezing cold and they're breathing, you're seeing like, that's you know, CG, the, yeah. that's totally yeah. CGI. That that looks like it. You know, they, yeah, I, they've I, never I, really I, been able to perfect that in any film. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, but I did not know about the Harvard stuff. Uh, I thought it was shot at Harvard. Mm. Yeah. So he he gets back home, grabs a beer, and immediately, of course, jumps on his computer and writes in his blog. And and he really did have a blog, and he really did write nasty things about this woman, not Erica Albright, but someone else. Erica Albright's a bitch. Do you think that's because her family changed their name from Albrecht? Or do you think it's because I'll be you girls are bitches? Harsh. <laughs> and then if that wasn't harsh enough, how about... For the record, she may look like a 34C, but she's getting all kinds of help from our friends at Victoria's Secret. She's a 34B, as in barely anything there. False advertising. And Victoria's Secret is something we will hear down the line. Right. Him blogging about her, that's, you know, that's we see that now as a standard practice. People go, well, I've heard this. Is it true? Uh, you know, we see that going on now on Twitter all the time. People throw up stuff to, to see if people will react to it and to get reactions from people about it. And they insinuate incorrect things or false things just to see if people will react to it. And he, in essence, is almost prescient doing that here in this movie because that is going to be now the standard practice of a lot of people who want to rile people up with misinformation on social media. So it's fascinating to watch him do this here and born from the place of being rejected Instead of going home and licking his wounds and learning the lesson of communicating better, he goes vindictive and gets on a public format to embarrass her without thinking about the fact of how it will affect her down the road. You know, One thing I, I want to point out or say about just about that mm-hmm. um, is the thing I, I have to keep reminding myself is these are kids, you know, like you yeah. know, Zuckerberg right. at this time is like, you know, 19. Right. And I think about all the stupid things I did at 19 and none of it was recorded on the internet because there wasn't a way to do that when I was 19. Thank God. Exactly. For me too, man, please. (laughs) The truth is she has a nice face. I need to do something to take my mind off her. Easy enough, except I need an idea. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this film is a, it's about a guy with 
minimal or very odd social skills, Mm -hmm. creating a social network. So right there, there's a very weird thing. It's about the desire to be social, to make connections from a person who has real problems making connections. And it's also about, and this is things that we didn't really understand or because this was also new in 2010, but, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. It's about seeing other people's lives and it's about trolling another thing that didn't really exist then but that is exactly what he's doing and it's about the fact that the internet is permanent because we know that mark zuckerberg actually wrote these terrible things because we can read them today yeah because the internet is permanent that that aspect of zuckerberg this sort of oxymoron you know, that he is a socially awkward guy creating a social network Mm. is a complexity about character that is unique to this film compared to Charles Kane in Citizen Kane. It's, Mm. you know, I would never refer to Charles Foster Kane as socially awkward in any way, but that is an excellent observation about Zuckerberg that gives social network, the movie, uh, another level of complexity that, I never thought about before. Well, I think, and again, this goes to the 21st century Citizen Kane of that Harvard final club network of the elite. That is the 20th century. That is not what the elite is today. Mm -hmm. The elite, you know, Charles Foster Kane and William Randolph Hearst hobnobbed with all the elite. They were, it's funny. uh, Someone had just read a book. It's from the forties called the power elite which I read recently, and it is all about the power structure in the United States. And the thing this guy that recommended it to me was saying was that it really needs to be updated because that power structure is totally different. And it's Bill Gates and Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg. That's the power structure today. And those guys are not in the final club. They're not hobnobbing. They're not having cotillions and coming out parties. They're not doing all that stuff that Charles Foster Kane was doing. This is a different world. You know, this is the ruling of the of the geeks. The Kirkland Facebook is open on my desktop, and some of these people have pretty horrendous Facebook pics. Oh, no. By the way, had you heard this term, a Facebook, before Facebook? Absolutely not. Never, no. never heard of it. John, did you? Nope. Nope. Me, me neither. And I think it's because we're old. I think that this <laughs> idea, that what I learned was that if you went to college in 2000. Big for yourself. Well, I, yeah. I I believe that I am the oldest one here. I think I'm older than Scott by a month. I'm 35. So <laughs> if you went to college in 2002, they had this thing when you moved into your dorm of like a book with pictures of everybody's faces, mm. so you could meet people. Like that was a, a normal, which I didn't really know. Yeah. Uh, and we get this idea from Billy Olson, one of his roommates, that they're going to about having farm animals and have people vote on who's hotter. And that starts the beginning of this idea. And what we're going to see now is two things intercut. And again, this idea that Aaron Sorkin wants you to be behind. And I think Fincher wants you to be behind too. I mean, if you think about a movie like Fight Club or like Seven, you're not up to speed with what the hell is going on. You know, you're you're behind. And so now we start with this shot going down. At first, I didn't even recognize that I'm looking in a bus, but going down the aisle of a bus at all these beautiful women and you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And what we're actually intercutting is these women arriving at what we heard about, which was a final club. And we're intercutting from that back to Mark, 
who says, The first thing we're going to need is a lot of pictures. Unfortunately, Harvard doesn't keep a public centralized Facebook, so I'm going to have to get all the images from the individual houses that people are in. Let the hacking begin. So we're going to intercut this party set up with Mark hacking all these different uh, houses. Uh, and by the way, one of the things Fincher said is he loves to show competence. He loves to show this person really knows what they're doing, whether it's sports or medicine or anything he's showing. And this is the scene where we see that Mark is a genius at hacking. Mm. The other funny thing is that Aaron, who read all of the real Mark Zuckerberg's blogs from this time where Mark Zuckerberg described all the hacking he did, was very grateful because Aaron has no idea what he's talking about in this whole thing. All of this is just directly out of Mark Zuckerberg's actual blogs. <laughs> Next is Elliot. They're also open, but with no indexes on Apache. I can run an empty search and it returns all the images in the database in a single page. And it's sort of at the point that the women walk into this old house and we see all these guys in suits and all this obvious opulence that you go, oh, I get it. I love the contrast between the suits and the fancy surrounding and the guy that starts talking is wearing a stupid looking headband. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because yeah. it just tells you so much about what this world is. Excuse me, everybody. You are at one of the oldest, one of the most exclusive clubs, not just at Harvard. But in the world. And I want to welcome you all to Phoenix Club's first party of the fall semester. Man, my parties at college didn't look anything like this. <laughs> oh, not even close. Yeah. Not even close. I mean, look, this world, this world of an Ivy League college, you know, I went to Penn State. My GPA was laughable. I studied something I hated. Uh, what did you study? I studied, you're going to laugh. I studied accounting. Hey. <laughs> I, wow. I studied accounting and here I am talking to you guys on a deep dive about the social network. <laughs> that, that degree is coming into real good use. <laughs> you owe $60,000 on your taxes. The firm of Mance, Mance and Mance. But I did, I did minor in film studies. Uh, so, yeah. you know, like I did what I had to do so I could do what I wanted to do. And while Mark is, hacking away they're taking pills and they're getting naked and there's dancing and everyone is hot and everyone is beautiful and this again is establishing mark's outsider status and it's showing it's saying and th this is the this is how the juxtaposition of images in film is this remarkable power mm. which is that it says by looking at these things side by side that this is what mark doesn't have and this is what he wants. It's telling us a motivation, even though that's not necessarily what he's saying, but like that is what we see. And, and it's so connected to the creation of the social network, you know? Yeah, this sequence is so fascinating because he is sitting in his little dorm room with all his little friends who haven't been invited to these parties yeah. and can't get through. And you're watching what goes on at these parties and what happens in, you know, the status symbol of the parties, right? Um, and those people think they're sitting on top of the world and have no idea of the earthquake that is coming mm. that is being created in the small little dorm room by Mark Zuckerberg and these other guys. And eventually, of course, Eduardo when he shows up. So you see that all going through as a juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. He wants what they have. And in a moment of anger and bitterness and frustration, and as you said, Steve, there's a young kid, so the emotional development, maybe maybe not 100% there, uh, lashes out in a certain way and then 
continues the lashing out by using his intelligence to create this thing in a way to denigrate women in a way without knowing maybe intentionally, possibly intentionally, possibly not intentionally to, you know, compare women to other women and their status and their look and all of this stuff. And it becomes in essence, a small bomb that explodes and the reverberations are stuff that we're still dealing with now, but his desire versus what he's creating is so interesting when you're watching these sequences juxtaposed against each other. Yep. Let me ask you a question. Have we met at water Savern yet? That's the next, that's he's literally the next line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because Steve, this conversation has made me think of something about this film that I had not thought about every time I've seen it. Mm. But in this conversation, fellas, talking about how in Citizen Kane, the way that Kane starts off is very idealistic and admirable, and then he yeah. descends. He loses mm. his character, becomes unlikable, whereas in Social Network, Zuckerberg is unlikable from start to finish. So now that got me thinking, why is Saverin friends with him? I don't know. I have, I've had the same question. I don't get it. I really don't get their friendship at all. I, I'm just now coming to that epiphany. Like, why is Saverin even friends with this guy? Because Saverin is a good-looking guy. He's mm-hmm. going after a, a, a club, a frat, if you will, <laughs> that uh, – you know, Zuckerberg has no chance of getting into and could seed jealousy that snowballs by the end of the film leading to Saverin getting screwed out of Facebook. But why is he even friends with him? Like, I'm just, John, what do you think? Well, I think this happens. You know, I think you have those. Uh, I think uh, it happens uh, in certain groups. There are people who are just part of that group and you're like why why is this yeah. person a part of the group why are you're you you're totally right john yeah right i mean why are you involved in this and it's because as you said steve earlier this film is told in essence by eduardo from eduardo's point of view um you know kind of like leland telling the story of kane from his point of view or bernstein or these other people uh that's another way this could be a citizen kane connection because as you said the author did not interview zuckerberg but interviewed eduardo so if you're using that book as a basis you're in essence doing the Citizen Kane model of having everyone else talk about Kane, but not Kane himself talk about himself and not getting the point of view of his uh, experience doing what he did. So we're seeing it through other people's eyes. And so with Eduardo, in, of course, he's going to paint himself as the good looking uh, guy who can get women if he wanted to, who's got the program and the code to help him do these kinds of things. So it's a way of uh how can it what's the what's the term burgeoning up your resume what building up your resume or whatever it is you're you're, you're just a kind patting. of make, huh? patting patting your resume yeah exactly he's patting uh, his resume uh, with all of these things about himself so that we ask this question why is he involved you know and so those kinds of things but Pat, I patting i thought you were gonna say lying <laughs> <laughs> well no uh, it's like kind like, of the same thing i guess a little <laughs> right you're just building up what's already there but everybody right. around him obviously are all these kind of nerds and kind of have these things. And so I think no matter how much Eduardo and Andrew Garfield is a good looking dude, he clearly has issues and wants to be part of this club and he's caught between two worlds. Um, One of the things I read about the real Mark Zuckerberg Mm. is that while he did frequently have these weird pauses, 
So someone would ask him a question and he would just sort of stare for 30 seconds before responding, <laughs> yeah. like, which is something it sounds like he worked very hard to fix and doesn't do anymore. Mm. But, and, and he also had this ability, he would just stare at you when he was displeased, which people described as the eye of Sauron. If uh, Mark was not happy with you, wow. but it also sounds he, like he was affable and he did have social skills and he did oh, yeah. have friends. And you know, that, that this characterization that we're seeing in this movie of this really removed person is not so there's i'm sure there were reasons why the real edward Saverin, eduardo Saverin, became friends with him even though we're not seeing him here so a i agree uh, andrew garfield i think is is great he originally was asked to read for mark so he spent two and a half weeks preparing Hmm. the role for mark and he came in and this is is so true when you're casting some people great actors will come in and the minute you open they open their mouth you're like no you're not right for this you're great you're not right for this part. And so Fincher very apologetically said, I'm really, really sorry, but would you be interested in reading for Eduardo? Thinking, you know, this it's going to be a demotion. And, and Andrew's like, are you kidding? I'll do any part you want in this movie. I want to be in this movie. You're David Fincher. Yeah. And what he said, which I find really interesting, is he said the two and a half weeks he spent preparing for Mark were invaluable in him playing Eduardo. Mm. is that because he had thought so deeply about this guy mm. that it really, really helped. You know, it's <laughs> a great point, Steve, because looking at his performance throughout the whole movie, even when he's upset at Zuckerberg in that scene um, in the office later on, he j- has empathy for Mark He for for whatever reason. Even in the uh, deposition scenes that we said we're going to get to here in the early part of the film, you can tell he he knows who Mark is but he also has a little bit of empathy for Mark throughout. And that that's an element that he's playing. It's not overt. It's just hanging out there. And I think with the two and a half things, two and a half weeks of studying him gave him that kind of extra layer to throw into his performance as an actor. And that's a, it's an excellent thing to, to, to consider when you look at well, it. I think that, that Andrew Garfield is terrific in this movie. Mm. And I didn't realize that he had read for Zuckerberg and, but Garfield's performance, his commitment to his performance, the arc that he goes through, yeah. Like now that's an arc, okay? Yeah. But 100%. uh shockingly, while Jesse Eisenberg was nominated for an Academy Award, Andrew Garfield was not. Mm-hmm. You know how many people to this day will reference Andrew Garfield and say, Oh, yeah, when he was nominated for the social network, and I go, uh-uh, no, he was not. He was snubbed. That was a snub. He should have been, but he was not nominated. And right now, Mark is thrilled that he's here because he needs an algorithm that apparently Andrew that Eduardo created to rank chess players. And he says, because we're ranking girls. And then they do this thing that I've seen in so many movies that I'm still asking the question is, does anybody actually do this? Which is writing the formula on the window as the shot is going. It's always a great shot. It's great in Beautiful Mind. It's great in Goodwill Hunting. And I'm like, do people do this? They write on windows? Is that a thing? But they do do that, and it's and it's great. And we're talking about this, how we're going to figure out ranking these girls. And while they're thinking about ranking girls' attractiveness, we cut to some very attractive girls back at this party, yeah. now mostly undressed and kissing each other and um all, all all the by the way whenever there were things when i was in high school and college and and things like that happened at a party i was always in the other room <laughs> people come up to me it's like steve can you believe that so and so took their top off i'm like no i was getting a soda I, uh, <laughs> never i always missed it good stuff good stuff <laughs> <laughs> so here were the other actors in the supporting role christian bale 
for fighter John Hawks and Winner's Bone, Jeremy Renner of the town, Ruffalo for kids are all right, and Jeffrey Rush for the King's Speech. Who would you take out for? I remember really liking uh, Winter's Bone, but I yeah. don't remember that performance. Hawks. Those are all good performances. I think it was yeah, uh, the Winter's Bone. I mean, like, I mean, look, uh, I mean, obviously, J Law was. Yeah, right. that was her breakthrough movie. Uh, now, uh, look, I would. Yeah, you're right. I would take out the uh, Hawks and put in Garfield. Yeah, because Chris, Christian Bale is astounding in the fighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he, he won. He won the Oscar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we finish coming up with this program to compare girls' hotness, and they put it out on email, and they say, "Who should we send it to first? Dwyer, Neil. Who are we gonna send it to? Uh, just a couple of people. The question is, who are they gonna send it to?" Reason I want to highlight this line is this is the entire history of Facebook. Mm-hmm. How do we get more people to share our stuff and join and be more engaged? Yeah. That is going to that is essentially Mark Zuckerberg's life work. Also, the way he delivers the line is malevolent, right? Yep. He's like, I'm going to share it with two people. I don't know who they're going to share it with. So there's a malevolence to it where he feels, you know, oh, I've got buffers here where they can't bring it, lead it back to me. But, you know. So they send it out and immediately guys start playing the game and are loving it and are, you know, it's the middle of the night and they're all obsessively on this thing comparing women. And here is another small important fact. Face smash or whatever this thing was called Mm -hmm. was men and women. It wasn't just women. Okay. So for the context of the movie, they make it women, Mm. but it's men and women. Interesting. I did not know that. And the thing is, that's so fundamental because one is connected to Erica Albright, who dumped him while he can't go to the hot party with all the hot women. And now he is doing this incredibly misogynistic thing that was not, in fact, misogynistic because it was it was it was all sorts of things about surface and all sorts of things that weren't cool. But it wasn't just about women. That is a fundamental change. That is a big change. Absolutely it is. And then we cut to Erica Albright. And at first you think, oh, they're getting the comparison thing. But in fact, her roommate has found the blog and says, you don't want to read it. And of course, I mean, if someone says you don't want to read it, how many people don't read it? (laughs) Yeah, I I do want to take a moment here um, to appreciate Rooney Mara again. Her nonverbal performance here when... Those two guys come through with the bra and they're like, is this yours or are you a tranny and and whatever, which is a horrible thing to say, right? But Rooney Mara's eyes as she is grasping the horror of being embarrassed in this way by a guy like this and the utter shame of it and her uh, the tears welling, like it is a powerful moment that she delivers in that uh, non-verbally in that moment when she realizes like the embarrassment. I'm sure there's a lot of women who've been embarrassed in this way, uh, who can absolutely relate to that moment. So another person we meet, by the way, who's excited at how much traffic this thing is getting is their roommate, Duskin Moskowitz, who's going to be a very, very wealthy guy at some point, played by Joe, Joe Joseph Mazzello, who mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen Joseph Mazzello on the cinephiles since he was hanging from an electric fence in Jurassic Park. <laughs> What's crazy so, is uh, that the bass player in uh bohemian rhapsody yeah oh but we haven't gotten to that one yet. we have not gotten to that nor i don't like that movie that much so <laughs> i don't know that i don't know that it's hot, very high on my list but but the amazing thing david fincher says 
he didn't realize this was the kid from Jurassic Park <laughs> until they were wrapping the movie and someone told him. That's awesome. That's an awful lot of traffic. I think maybe we shouldn't shut it down before we get into trouble. The look from Mark Zuckerberg at that moment says so much. Does he want to get in trouble? I think a little bit, yeah. You know, and as you said, these are kids. These are, oh, sorry, not kids. These are uh, young people. And so young people sometimes like to push the boundaries. And certainly Zuckerberg throughout this whole movie pushes the boundaries from the opening scene with Erica all the way through to the end. He pushes the boundaries of what should and should not be done and the behavior that should or should not be happening in a certain situation. I'm going to take that one step further, Johnny. Mm-hmm. Does does he want to shut it down? No. Shut it down. He doesn't he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Right. He doesn't care. He's he's giving that look, Steve. That is a look of 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 judgment. Mm. Like grow the f up. Mm. Smarten up, be a man, grow a pair of balls. Who the hell cares if we are going to get in trouble or they're going to shut us down? Be a man. Like that's where you're basically separating the men from the boys in this case. Scott, I'm going to take it one step further than you did, because not only do I agree with everything both of you have said, <laughs> but I think he's excited about the yeah. idea of taking down Harvard's internet. I think Absolutely. he totally sees it as an accomplishment. There's this moment later on in the ad board where he says, I think I should get some recognition or whatever his line is. Is he th- He's doing something really impressive. From his laptop computer at four in the morning in the dorm, he's going to crash the whole damn system. Well, there's a very unusual amount of traffic to the switch at Kirkland. You're saying it's unusual for four in the morning? No, this would be unusual for halftime at the Super Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Great line. Yep. Yep. And that is exactly what happens. He crashes the system. And Eduardo says, You don't think? Jesse Eisenberg's so good at these kind of little looks. I do. And they see the network's down, and he smiles. Unless it's a coincidence, I think this is us. It's not a coincidence. So at the moment that Mark Zuckerberg has crashed the Harvard internet, I think, and look, I know we haven't gotten very far into the movie. <laughs> and guess what? Welcome to the Cinephiles with Scott Nance <laughs> as our special guest. Yeah. This is what you signed up for. I have <laughs> loved the conversation so far. And we're going to end part one of our explanation of the social network. How many parts is it going to be? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> but again, so I'll that, say that makes me very happy because, you know, when we did Blade Runner, we did it one part. When we did Wrath of Khan, we did it one part. We're doing social network. And I'm thinking like, I've been wanting to do this now for like three years. <laughs> and I've seen you do like, like, you know, 15 parts on <laughs> part two or whatever it is. And I'm like, hell no, or we we are so not doing social network in one part. So bring <laughs> it on, mister. You, you know, it's funny, Scott, and I think John and I have talked about this off mic a couple of times. Is, you know, we've, we've redone some of our earliest episodes because they were so short, like Die Hard, like Reservoir Dogs. We just didn't give them the time. Our Wrath of Khan episode and our Blade Runner episode, mm. which are both one-parters, those are two of the best conversations we've ever had on the cinephile. Yeah, and so I'm really torn between, like, I don't want to, they're great. There's like, there. Could we talk longer about those movies today? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also don't want to mess with success. You know what I mean? Like, I thought those yeah. were those are some of our best episodes. Definitely. 
But for now, this is the end of part one of The Social Network. And, of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts about the first few scenes of the movie. You can visit us on our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Cine underscore Files. You can follow the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. If you haven't been subscribed to the show, I think you should go from Apple Podcasts, subscribe there, to YouTube, subscribe there, go to Spotify, subscribe there, and everywhere that you can, you should probably leave a review because they really do help us a lot. If you want to support the show, listen to our Cinephile Shorts, and also we're building up some new things in the community for them to be more involved yeah. in the process of making the Cinephiles. That's patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. If you want to buy or stream The Social Network along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, that's at cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And of course, my other podcast with the great Scott Mance, Enterprise Incidents, where we are halfway through the animated series. And we just recorded a fantastic conversation with a fantastic guest yesterday john how would people find you uh you can always find me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says uh we just crossed twenty seven thousand subscribers today as we're recording which is i know for some people small potatoes but i'm the little engine that could congrats johnny that's amazing Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that. And also my other uh, podcasts uh, that I do, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mike that are out there for you all uh, with FYC cohort for Scott Mance, Jeff Snyder. Yeah. By the way, if you love movies, and obviously you do because you've listened to just part one, (laughs) where we basically got out of uh, Zuckerberg getting broken up with, you've got to be listening to the Hot Mike. Because John Roca and Jeff Snyder are breaking news on a level that even the trades cannot keep up with. And that is a very, very, very big deal. They are very big time. And for everyone listening to the Cinephiles, please share the Cinephiles on your social media platforms so more people can discover the greatness of the Cinephiles. And, you know, we're talking about. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who has a God complex. So just like Steve Morris on Enterprise Incidents will take one of our our Star Trek episodes and say, hey, if you like this, listen to this episode on the cinephiles. If you like films about someone with a God complex, then please listen to our deep dive of Who Mourns for Adonais. (laughs) (laughs) It features a God, Apollo, with a great conversation. And John Roca has joined us for four great episodes on Enterprise Incidents, and he's going to be back for an animated series episode. But once again, everyone, this is the, the creme de la creme of movie podcasts. So please keep getting the word out about the cinephiles. This is the real deal. That is one of my favorite segues ever uh, <laughs> uh, right there. Um, Scott, thank you so much uh, for coming back on the show. I'm sorry it's been far too long. And if people wanted to reach or find you, is there any way they could do that? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And uh, everything I do is posted on those platforms. You can just uh, follow the Yellow Brick Road. And I think that is it for this week. We will be back with part two of The Social Network right here on The Cinema.